Hi, my name is Colleen. The Old Testament reading is found in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and 12 and 13. Blow the horn in Zion, give a shout on my holy mountain. Let all the people of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and no light, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness spread out upon the mountains, a great and powerful army comes, unlike any that has ever come before them or will after them after centuries ahead. In front of them a fire consumes, and behind them a flame burns. Land ahead of them is like Eden's garden, but they leave behind them a barren wasteland. Nothing escapes them. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with sorrow. Tear your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, very patient, full of faithful love, and ready to forgive. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Wanda, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 1 through 3, CEB. So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. God has done what was impossible for the law since it was weak because of selfishness. God condemned sin in the body by sending his own son to deal with the sin in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing for the reading of the gospel. My name is David. The gospel reading is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 26. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who planted good seed in his field. While people were sleeping, an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and went away. When the stalks sprouted and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray, and open up our hearts and our minds to see, to hear, to understand, and to believe, so that you can conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you today. Welcome, welcome, welcome to New Life Downtown. Um, my name is Glenn Packiam. I get to serve here as the pastor at New Life Downtown. We're one of the six congregations at New Life Church, and uh, it's just great to be with all of you today. Just a quick little survey here. How many of you, when you're installing a software update or signing up for some new subscription service, how many of you actually read the terms and conditions? Just curious. Anybody? Any, okay. All of you just do what I do. Scroll to the bottom, click yes. Okay. Do you ever just sit up at night and all of a sudden wonder, what did I just say yes to? Right? And, and, and that's why some of you will copy and paste things on Facebook like, I revoke all rights to use my image and stories, you know, just in case I've accidentally given all those away. Right? We're, in this, we're starting a new series today called The Kingdom is Like. Now, leading up to Easter, we did the series on the book of 1 Samuel, and we tracked with the life of a guy named Samuel and a couple of kings named Saul and David, and we called the series Kingdom in Chaos, and it was about how God brings his rule on earth as it is in heaven, and how God wants to involve human beings in it, 
uh, but how reluctant we are to actually cooperate with God. And oftentimes we insist on ruling for ourselves and end up just multiplying chaos. And we said in that series, well, Jesus is the true king. He was the only one who could actually bring the kingdom. And so Easter Sunday was our big announcement of that. Yay, Jesus is the risen king. But here we are kind of breezing by this stuff so quickly that it's worth just pressing pause for a moment and saying, wait a minute, Jesus is king? Well, what's the kingdom like? One of the gospel writers named Luke uh, wrote his follow-up book, the book of Acts, and said that Jesus, after the resurrection, spent 40 days appearing to the disciples, demonstrating many proofs, and teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have any written down um, uh, recordings of what Jesus said to them about the kingdom of God, but we do know that the gospels were written down a few decades after that. In fact, somewhere around 80 AD or so, maybe we get one of the first gospels. And by the time the gospels are written down, these followers of Jesus are remembering back the time that Jesus walked with them and taught them. And they said, now that we know who he is, now that we know that he actually is the son of God and the king, and now that we know that he actually was bringing the kingdom, Let's look back at those stories he used to tell us and see if we can write them down. And so this is a series on the parables or the stories that Jesus told. And for the next six or seven weeks, we're going to camp out specifically in Matthew's gospel because there are some specific stories in there that Matthew has Jesus say, this is what the kingdom is like. But before we dive into today's parable, the first parable, it's worth just kind of saying a word about a parable. What? is a parable. Some of you business people maybe have read a business parables and fables and you're like, oh, it's like a metaphor or an allegory. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. The parables Jesus told were not sermon illustrations. They were not examples. They were not Aesop's fables. They were not sort of morality stories, nor were they kind of uh, the kind of story that made you always see more clearly. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, this is what Jesus himself says about why he told parables. Jesus' disciples came and said to him, why do you use parables when you speak to the crowds? Like, this is hard, Jesus. And Jesus replied, because they haven't received the secrets of the kingdom, but you have. For those who have will receive more, and they will have more than enough. But as for those who don't have, even the little that they have will be taken for them. And you're like, wait, Jesus, what is going on here? And then he says, well, this is why I speak to the crowds in parables. Although they see, they don't really see. And although they hear, they don't really hear and understand. You can see right away Jesus is setting them up. Don't think the parables are illustrations. Instead, the parables will do their work in you according to how you approach them. Centuries later, one of the early church fathers named Augustine came up with this saying, and it was in Latin, credo ut intelligam, which means, I believe in order to understand. I believe in order to understand. You have to kind of go there first, and then the message of the parable will do its work. One commentator says, in this way, the parables are like a work of art, but also like a weapon. Like this, this weapon that will tear down an old way of thinking and, and almost explode or blow up uh, some, some constructs that you may have had. But you got to let yourself go there first. Now, some of you may be here and you, you're here because you had such a great time at Easter last week. And you're like, okay, maybe I'll give this church thing another shot. And, but maybe you're not quite ready to say Jesus is king, he's Lord. These parables require what moviegoers know of as suspended disbelief. 
You, you don't watch a good movie and say, well, I, yeah, that could never happen. I mean, those are the worst people to see movies with, you know? Because of course we know that couldn't have happened. That's why I'm watching a movie, you know? And in a similar way, parables, you, you need to have a little suspended disbelief or, if you'd like, believe so that you'll understand what's really going on here. This first parable is about the wheat and the weeds. It's a parable about judgment. That's a lovely place to start, isn't it? My wife and I have been watching uh, a show that was on NBC for a little bit, and then uh, the first couple seasons of it are on Netflix. And it's always tricky to mention a show because some of you will immediately start judging. And, uh, and so I, ha I have to give like some important caveats that, that I don't endorse uh, everything about the show. And in fact, there's a few crude places um, and, and all that. So fair warning, not for kids. Um, but, but, but it's a show called The Good Place. Have any of you seen it? And I've seen the first two seasons waiting for the third one to be added on Netflix because, you know, we've cut cable. We don't do that. Uh, and, and Holly, we're, I'm rewatching the first season with her, so we're about two-thirds of the way through. The basic premise is it's the afterlife, and you can guess there's a good place and a bad place. And this lady, Kristen Bell, who's fabulous in the show, has made it into the good place by mistake. And so she's trying to demonstrate to Michael, the architect of the good place, that she actually belongs. And so she's got a tutor uh, um, who, who in this life was a moral philosophy professor. And he's trying to teach her all the different basis, bases of ethics. There's Kantian ethics and there's John Stuart Mill. And so if you geek out about eth ethics or moral philosophy, those two or three minutes in the show you'll think are just amazing, you know? <laughs> But if you're like me, it, the show is fascinating because it's a commentary on how our culture kind of thinks about judgment. How is this judgment thing going to work? Well, well, and so maybe you think, well, judgment is like God is like a supercomputer with a finely tuned algorithm that will make sure that the right people end up in the right places. Is this what judgment is like? Others of you, the moment you hear the word judgment, you're like, oh, this is what I hate about Jesus stuff. This is what I hate about church. This is what I hate about religion. This is what I hate about Christianity. Why does there even have to be a judgment? You're like, okay, that's great. We're going to explore some of that today. Others of you, the question is not why does there have to be judgment. The question is, well, hurry up already, God, because if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. So if you're going to judge, go, come do your judgy thing right now. Go get that person. Right? And so it, it evokes strong feelings in us. Either, oh, I don't want a God who judges, or I want a God who will judge already. What do we do about judgment? So the parable opens this way, verse 24. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along. If not, just feel free to read on the screen. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven. Now, just pause for a minute. Don't be thrown off by the word heaven. This is not a story about heaven. Matthew uses this phrase, kingdom of heaven, as a way of saying the kingdom from the God who reigns in the heavens, over the heavens. So it's the kingdom from the heavens, not about uh, heaven and harps and clouds and whatnot, okay? So the kingdom is like someone who planted good seed in his field while people were sleeping. An enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the stalk sprouted and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the landowner came and said to him, Master, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Then how is it that it has weeds? Side note, this is about to be the shortest answer to the problem of evil ever. Because this is basically what they're saying. Hey, you made a good world, right, God? So why are there bad things happening? 
And the master said, an enemy has done this, he answered. The servant said, well, do you want us to go and gather them? But the landowner said, no, because if you gather the weeds, you'll pull up the wheat along with them. Let both grow side by side until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll say to the harvesters, first, gather the weeds and tie them together in bundles to be burned, but bring the wheat into my barn. Now, this is one of those peculiar parables where Jesus actually explains it. So skip down with me to verse 36. Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. In other words, you already said that those who get it should get it, but we don't get it. So can you help us? Right? And Jesus replied, okay, I mean, this is almost like painfully like line by line here. The one who plants the good seed is the human one or the son of man, Jesus. The field is the world. The good seeds are the followers of the kingdom, but the weeds are the followers of the evil one. The enemy who planted them is the devil. I mean, the harvest is the end of the present age. Jesus is just going, let's just spell this out. (laughs) Harvesters are angels. And just as people gather weeds and burn them in the fire, so it will be at the end of the present age. The human one will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that cause people to fall away. In other words, evil. He will deal with evil and evildoers and all people who sin. God will deal, judgment is about dealing with evil and evildoers. He will throw them into a burning furnace. uh, People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Those who have ears, let them hear. I want to make three observations from this story about judgment. The first is this. There is a final judgment. There is a final judgment. Now, this is an interesting one because right off the bat, this is what we don't like about any system of belief or any religion. A couple years ago, I was talking to a young man who um, was connected, got connected to me through a friend of a friend, and, and he said, hey, I just want to talk to someone. I'm not a believer myself, but I'm fascinated by religion, and I'm, I'm doing something creative on my campus, and I just want to talk to you guys about it. So we sat down for about an hour, and he told me what he was up to. He's a student at Princeton. And he said, Princeton's been a great environment. And he said, well, what I, we decided was we needed some way of creating belonging without actually joining one of those Christian clubs. And so he kind of saw what groups like crew and navigators or whatever do on campus. And he said, We're, we want to do that, but without an actual religion. So he's like, no dogma, no doctrine, no, you know, no rules. But what we're going to do is eat pizza and we're going to share stories, kind of like you guys do, testimonies. He knew a little bit about that. And, uh, and then we're going to say some encouraging words about pursuing the generally good life. And we're just going to be a strength to one another. So I listened, and we talked, we had a great conversation about it. And, uh, and I said, well, how's it going? He said, well, it's going really well, except that it's starting to grow. I said, oh, that will, I mean, that's good. And, uh, and I said, well... How, how do you feel about that? And he said, well, the problem is, as it's starting to grow, there are people that are coming just for the pizza. <laughs> I said, oh. And he said, and there, are, there are people that are coming that don't really get what this meeting is for. And I said, well, do you have any sort of bylaws or like guidelines for the community? No. No, no, we don't want that. We don't want to be a religion. So, okay. Um, I said, well, do, do you have any sort of code that people all agree to? No, we don't want that. We don't want any kind of boundary line. We want a community that is... 100% absolutely inclusive. I said, okay, 
I said, have, have you ever read a sociologist named Randall Collins? Now, I had just finished diving into Collins' work because of my own dissertation stuff. So for like a brief minute, I got to sound really smart, you know. And he goes, oh, I've, I've just heard about this sociologist. I said, well, it's, the work is old. It's called Interaction Ritual Chains. And I said, Collins really demonstrates that even on a human level, you can't create bonds without boundaries. That you can't create solidarity of an in-group without also saying who's an out-group, and that this is a basic function of human community. And he goes, that is a good point. And I said, well, however you decide to go on, maybe you should just consider not being afraid about boundaries because that's inevitable if you want to create a community. He says, I think you're right. I'm going to think more about that. And what occurred to me is the problem is not, the question is not, are there boundaries? The question is, who is drawing them? The question is not, are there insiders and outsiders? The question is, on what basis are there insiders and outsiders? Do we exclude because of non-good grounds like you know, race or gender? Or, or, or is there some sort of adherence to a credo or, a, or a, a commitment that says this is who's in and this is who's not? So maybe we are wrong to reject Christianity immediately because there's a sense of judgment and there's a sense of in and out. All groups have a line. What we need to know is who's drawing it and on what basis. So the second part of the first point is there is a final judgment and you can trust the judge. There is a final judgment and you can trust the judge. You know what this means? This means at least two things for us. One, you don't have to know every detail about what judgment is like. Can I relieve you of that pressure? Many of the images in the Bible in the New Testament about judgment are metaphors, are picture language, fire, and, and all of this stuff. But some Christians have taken an overly literal approach just to say, well, I know exactly what hell's going to be like. And then they take one more step and they say, and I know exactly who's there. But you don't have to know the details of what judgment looks like, nor do you have to decide who's going. There is a final judgment and you can trust the judge. It's important to recognize that the creed has Christians confess, and we heard it in the baptism questions, has Christians confess that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. To be a Christian, you have to trust Jesus to judge. Full stop. Full stop. But somewhere along the way, we kind of thought, well, to be a Christian is to tell everybody else where they're going after they die. And so there's Christians who have become experts in who's in hell or going there fast. And so you just find a way to bring it up in casual conversation. You know, your most despised politician, you're like, oh, they're going straight to hell. You know, I know it's tempting, but we don't. C.S. Lewis in one of his Chronicles of Narnia books, just beautifully in The Horse and His Boy, it's one of the stories that comes kind of in between Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian and Toward the end of the story, Lewis says to the child, he says, child, said the lion, lion is the, the lion is this picture of Jesus, I am telling you your story, not hers. No one is told any story except their own. This is huge. Because when we say there is a final judgment and you can trust the judge, it means you don't have to be an expert in somebody else's story. You don't have to say, well, I, I, I know without a, without a doubt this is where it's going and this is where you're headed. Because, second observation from this parable, things are not always as they seem, but you'll have to wait and see. 
Things are not always as they seem, but you will have to wait and see. The Greek word behind bad seed is this word for a weed known as the Darnell weed. Anyone heard of the Darnell weed? I'm not a gardener, but this is what one commentator said about it. Its grains are poisonous, but its appearance looks almost identical to wheat. And when it's good, it's got slightly narrower leaves, but it mix, when it mixes in with the wheat crop, it renders the wheat crop commercially useless and potentially harmful. Because of its similar growth, the Darnell infestation would not be readily apparent until the plants begin to form their little ears. And by that time, it's too late to eradicate the Darnell weed without damaging the wheats with which its roots are actually intertwined. The only solution is the painstaking work of separating, separating the two after you've cut the stalks. Cut them all, and then say it's exactly what the parable says. Things are not always as they seem, but you'll have to wait and see. One of the reasons why it's, it's difficult to pronounce certain, sure and certain judgment over another person is because trajectory, I'd like to suggest to you, trajectory is more important than status. And here's what I mean by that. Some people are not by status Christians. They don't go to church. But they're on this trajectory. They're exploring. They're leading. This is why we have Alpha. Because we want to encourage people who are asking questions. We want to encourage people who are saying, I don't believe, but I have all these questions. We want that to happen. This last week, 44 guests showed up at Alpha on Tuesday night. Beautiful. And we've set a table for them. Come and have dinner with us. We want you because we know in the end, trajectory matters more than status. What if... A year from now, they find themselves in a different place. And then on the flip side, there are people who are in church, call themselves by the name Christian. Their status seems right. Check the box. That's my religion. But their trajectory is headed in the opposite direction. Things are not always as they seem, but you're going to have to wait and see. Lewis, C.S. Lewis told this metaphor of a horse that could be trained to jump hurdles and a pegasus, which is the mythical winged horse that hadn't grown its wings yet. And he said, look, before the pegasus has its wings, it may not be very good at jumping hurdles. And so you train a horse to jump hurdles, and you're like, that's a better horse. Put my money on that horse. But if you wait long enough, the pegasus' wings will develop, and there's no hurdle too high that it cannot jump. What, what's that like? That's like seeing a person's life and you're like, oh, this, I met so-and-so, he's a Christian. What a lousy person. He was rude. He was foul-mouthed. And you're like, but you don't know where he is in his journey. Amen. You don't know where they are. What if they actually are a winged horse whose wings are just coming in? And you might meet someone else who comes from a you know, nice family and has well-trained and has proper table manners. And you're like, that is such a good moral person. And no doubt you've heard people say, gosh, I know plenty of non-Christians who are way nicer than Christians. But that's not the point, is it? Because you can be nice, you can clear hurdles, but at some point you're going to fall short. Things are not always as they seem, but you're going to have to wait and see. I was talking the other day with some friends about a, a Christian leader, a teacher that we all used to admire 10, 15 years ago. I'm like, oh, this guy's so great, so clever, so wise. And then as time has gone on, he's slid into a different space and then a different space. And, a different, and, and today, he's basically a spiritual entertainer who peddles a kind of generic spiritualist universalism. And we're like, well, that's a bummer. You see why 
things are not always as they seem, but you're going to have to wait it out. We're going to have to wait and see how this ends. And, and, then, and then I think about C.S. Lewis himself, who, yes, Anglican, then atheist, then he was a spiritualist. Now, if you stopped and took a snapshot of his life when he was a spiritualist, you'd say, this guy's never going to make it. He believes in ghosts and all this stuff. And then he became a general theist, and then he became a Christian. You just don't know where the story's going. And maybe for some of you, this is actually really encouraging because you know people close to you. And you're like, I don't like where they are right now. Have you ever said that, felt that? And maybe your prayer is, God, I'm going to wait. I'm going to be patient. But Lord, would you bring them to a different place than where they are right now? Some of you parents waiting for prodigal adult children. Some of you roommates, friends, people you had made memories with. And you're like, ah, I don't know. What this parable says to us is don't go pulling weeds too fast. Don't be so sure you know how this story ends. You, You may not. Be patient. Wait. The other aspect of this idea of waiting and of patience reminds me of the movie Minority Report. Anybody seen that? years ago. The whole idea is this sort of brain trust kind of predicts who's going to commit a crime or a major crime and and then preemptively arrests people. And you think, well, this is the solution to evil in our society. It's just predict. We have the smarter computer. Alexa, (laughs) which of my neighbors is, you know, But the problem, of course, as the movie shows, is this dilemma. Human beings are so dynamic, you don't know which way they're going to head. And so we can't say, look, I know what Josh is going to do tomorrow. So we, Josh, we're going to arrest you today based on what you're considering doing right now. You're like, well, I'm not going to do anything. It doesn't work that way. And so this is the answer, part of the response to the question of, well, why won't God act now? If God were to prevent every possibility of evil, he would also be precluding the possibility of repentance. Sit with that for a minute. If God were to prevent every possibility of evil, he would also be precluding the possibility of repentance. Think about that. And so we want God to say, God, you all, if you already know who's going to do what, then why don't you just throw a lightning bolt at him right now? Smite them, almighty smiter. And this is why Peter writes in 2 Peter, he says, no, God is not slow to keep his promise, as some of you think of slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to change their hearts and lives. This is actually why for many Christians, they stand against the death penalty, because for, for, for these Christians, they would say, we don't have the right to end someone else's story, because we don't know what other chapter could be ahead. We don't know what repentance. We don't know what turn. We don't know what change of heart. And we know God is patient. And so this willingness to wait it out over someone else's life is part of the message of this parable. Things are not always as they seem, but you're going to have to wait and see. Finally, the final observation is actually not from this parable, but from the rest of the New Testament. And that is that you can actually face judgment now. (laughs) You're like, why would I want to do that? and find assurance for the future. You can face judgment now and find assurance for the future. Now, hang with me for a minute. In the Old Testament, judgment day was sometimes called the day of the Lord. 
And they had all these sort of imagery connected with the darkness and fire and all of this stuff that was connected to the day of the Lord. If you ever venture into reading one of those small prophet books like Joel, which we heard from this morning, or Amos, which Pastor Jason has done, a 40-day Bible study on the book of Amos. It's tremendous. I just read it during Lent. It's absolutely amazing. You'll discover that this day of the Lord thing is the idea of God bringing judgment and kind of salvation to his people, except that by the end of it, they realize, no, they deserve judgment too. Now, have you ever wondered, and doubtless you have, why when the gospel writers tell the story of the crucifixion, they say, and the sky turned dark, and they use all of this apocalyptic language? It's because of that verse we heard today in Romans 8. Judgment day happened on Good Friday. Judgment Day happened on Good Friday. God judged, Paul says, sin in the body of Christ Jesus. God brought his judgment down on sin and on behalf of every sinner. That means that if you say yes to Jesus, you will be united with him in his death and raised with him in his resurrection. Amen. For you, judgment is is already over. 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 Okay, I'm going to say it again so that you can explode with gratitude here, okay? Paul, Paul in, in Romans, Paul builds this crescendo. All have sinned, all this stuff. And then he says, and now there's no more condemnation if you're in Christ. In other words, your judgment day has already occurred. If you identify with Jesus Christ, you've already passed through it. Christians don't have to tremble when you think about Judgment Day. You don't have to. It's already happened. You, you identified with Christ. Christ took the judgment for us. And now we've been raised with Him. We are more fully ourselves than we've ever been because God has restored us. And Jesus presents us to the Father. He's cleaned us up, restored us, and said, Look, your beloved son and your beloved daughter. And God says, yes, you're mine. And it's a tragedy that in so many churches, Christians have been, had this sort of wagged over their heads. Well, I know you're good now, but judgment's coming, sister. One day there'll be a movie played of your life. Remember that one? Oh, no. What did Paul mean when he said, your, your life is hidden with Christ? What did he mean that he said, for those who are in Christ, there's no more condemnation, judgment, so it's over. The dark day of the Lord is over. Amen. And that's why in the day of Pentecost, Luke uses a different image. He uses fire, but now it's not fire of judgment. It's the fire of, of purification and of empowerment. That's what the followers of Jesus get. We've already, Jesus has already taken our judgment. We've shared it with him now by faith in him. And now what do we get? We get the fire of his spirits. So when you read a parable like this and it says, well, the wheat and the weeds and it's going to be thrown in the fire. If you're in Christ, you can say, well, that's already happened. It's already happened. I can, now, I'm not saying that Nothing left for you to do. No, you're already, you've committed to this life now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, he said it this way, the cross comes at the beginning of our life with Christ, not at the end. Listen to this quote. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first 
Christ's suffering, which every person must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Bonhoeffer is saying there is going to be a giving up, but it happens at the beginning of the story. That's right. you, you, you experience the death of judgment at the very beginning of this. And then he says, it is that dying of the old self which is the result of his encounter with Christ. Then as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. The most powerful part of the good news is that in Christ's death and resurrection, we are united with him. It's already happened. Judgment has already happened. Resurrection's already happened. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. Somebody say begins. begins. It begins. This is how it begins. Now listen to this sentence here. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But this is how some of you as Christians think about judgment. You're like, I'm trying to do my best, but you know, life's hard. And once in a while I say a curse word, and I, but I'm doing okay. But is God going to give me a cross at the end of it and say, you know? Bonhoeffer said, no, no, the cross comes at the beginning. It's not the end of an otherwise God-fearing life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Amen. When Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. Amen. Come and die. That's why water baptism today is so beautiful. Because that's what those seven individuals did before the whole church. They said, my life's over. It's been nice. See you later. Actually, I won't. I'm going to be raised up. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in Amen. me. Amen. 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 Come on. You can't make yourself wheat. You can't make yourself not weeds. The way into it is to say, without Christ, I am weed. I am this poisonous Darnell weed. I'm part of what's infecting the world. But in Christ, I've already gone through the fire of judgment. And I've been raised up. And I am good seed. I'm wheats now. I will bear fruit. I, my life will be for the good and for the life of the world to the glory of God. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. amen. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.